Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. So we've got a special episode for you today. But before we get into that, let's start with the classic disclaimers that this is podcast is for education and and entertainment purposes. This does not constitute working with a mental health provider. So please find one in your area. And if you can't find one in your immediate area, be open to the virtual. I know it's not necessarily the favorite thing people want, but you know, even a little bit of mental health help is better than none. So today is going to fall into one of our special categories aspects as we have a returning guest uh, here, as you've heard, uh, well, once I get to the bio, you get them, but they've got a project they've been focusing on and developing and that we're going to give them a chance to talk to because they're also running their first program later this month in June. So who I'm talking about is our returning guest, Mercedes Salmonio, is a licensed clinical social worker, best-selling author, international speaker, and visionary entrepreneur. She works with parents around the world in developing a healthy parental identity with their with her revolutionary parental identity development model and incorporating her shame-proof parenting philosophy to help reduce the shame parents experience as they raise their healthy children. Mercedes is also trained in trauma-informed modalities, which she uses in her work with parents to help them heal the past traumas that can influence the way parents interact with themselves and their children. Outside of her professional life supporting parents, Mercedes is married to her best friend and soulmate, and they live in sunny Southern California with their three furry children, two cats and a dog. And you can learn more about her work at www.shameproofparenting.com. Hello, Mercedes. Hi, Perry. Thanks so much for having me back on. Oh, glad I could do it. And actually, now as I was reading, rereading your bio, it's like when this will air, it will be following a po- the podcast that I've just done with um, Monty Goldman and um, James Williams. We were talking about parents and video games. Mm. And the focus being there, it's not so much just dealing with what the kids' relationship with the video games is. What is the parent's relationship to the video games and to their kids, especially around their sense of shame? Yes. So wow. I'm going to look wow. at this being as like, oh, this is cosmic planning. Very, very. And I think it will be very much in alignment. So much so. God, exactly. That's a great topic. I can't wait to listen to that episode. That's a great topic. <laughs> oh, we try. But we're here to also to talk about your pro- project. So uh, last time we spoke was back during uh, December when we had re- re- we reviewed Wakanda Forever. So in these last six, roughly six months uh, since we last spoke, you've also been doing some other things. So why don't we catch up a little of that and then we can talk about your program. Yeah, yeah. So what I've been doing really is focusing on my doctoral program and finishing up, which is kind of where the foundation for this program and the research for the program that we'll be talking about um, came from. Mm -hmm. I also kind of dove into a little bit of my macro level work and looking at how to explore how policy change actually creates the systemic change that we want for African-American families in mental health settings. And so really looking at kind of 
being a Wakandan almost, <laughs> right? Bringing some of that Wakandan spirit to the mental health world and how we're supporting African-American families uh, who are seeking out services, but for whatever reason, aren't being able to get this, the culturally competent services that they are seeking at, at that time. Mm-hmm. So what has, as you because that's going to be part of what we actually talk about with your program and so forth. But can you give us a few core streamlined components of this, of what you've been learning, or is that all going to be talking about the project too? Yeah, we can start talking about it for sure. Because I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've always seen in my work is that we tend to, as, as mental health providers, be trained generically and Mm -hmm. broadly And when we got into the world, we tried to use those broad strokes to explore people's pain and explore people's healing journeys. And sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes we really do. And I I wouldn't even say sometimes. I think it's really important for us to be able to pay attention to the Mm -hmm. unique experiences that people have and how their identities uh, influence those unique experiences. And I think that needs to be woven into our training as well as our actual work in the mental health field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think that gets back to the problem of being the idea that any therapist can work with any person, which has been, uh, I remember that being sort of a unspoken notion in my education as a therapist. And then some degree too, when we started dealing with uh, siphon agency work, even though they had an intake coordinator and you're trying to direct people who are going to be the best fit, well, that guess means that's not working with everybody. And I remember actually going to try to apply for a job at another agency where I asked about the aspect of client therapist relationship fit being an important component. And they were like, no, you just work with everybody. It's like, I'm very much supporting the idea of do we fit together as opposed to, again, creating that antagonistic component that nothing changes, nothing works. There's no reason to listen. Right. And I think you hit on something that is so important in our training is that oftentimes we are trained under very Eurocentric kind of colonized ideas. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to pay attention to the fact that psychology was founded on really kind of white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, you know, more affluent ideals. Mm -hmm. And so as we've evolved from those early foundations of like Freud and Piaget and all of, and, you know, Erickson and all those people who kind of founded a lot of what we know, we haven't changed our perspective from those early foundations. And I Mm -hmm. think you hit it right on the head, which is you cannot work with everybody and Every client deserves to have a therapist who understands their unique experiences. And if you don't, that should be a really good light bulb moment for you to either get training or get more supervision around it. And I don't think that is harped on enough in our field. Mm -hmm. Or even the idea is that they need to be passed. You can pass them on to someone who might be a better fit. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you're any less. And this yeah. and equally too, that standpoint of if you're going to get training, yeah, there's times we can do that training while we're working with a client. And sometimes that can't be done because it might be a two or three year program. And it's like what that client's going to just sit there and pause. Right, right, right. And I think that's the piece of it that's so important. Thank you for sharing that piece about 
fit. There's actually research that shows that cultural matching and cultural fitting actually works really well to support the long-term outcomes of clients who are entering into mental health services or healthcare services. That being paralleled with the statistics that say that, especially for African-American and Black families, there's been a huge stigma and history of mistreatment in the healthcare settings that has created this this distrust sometimes of the healthcare mm-hmm. settings. And then when you look at the stigma of mental health in the Black community, that adds more distrust. So even if you enter into the healthcare setting to get even more niche down to the mental health services part of it is an even bigger barrier that I think we don't address enough when we're talking about cultural matching, when we're talking about how do we make sure that people are the right fit, even when there's not the opportunity for cultural matching, even to make sure that that we have the training or Mm -hmm. the modalities available for people to be able to access, do I understand this client? Um, I even would mention supervision. Are are supervisors being trained to work with supervisees who might be dealing with unique experiences from identities that they don't have training from? Mm -hmm. And so all of this systemic kind of nuance, I think, really gets down to the bottom of why I am doing the work that I'm doing and why we're starting to see more um, identity-specific trainings within the mental health space. I think it's really important to acknowledge that while all humans are human and we can definitely work with people and support them in managing uh, their mental health problems and their acute symptoms, I think when we're thinking about long-term health outcomes and long-term lasting change for these families, especially families that tend to be underserved in these communities, we really do have to look at those systemic nuances on, yeah, we can treat these acute things very quickly, right? Sometimes we have the right modality and the right time, but when we're looking at how do we keep these families out of these systems, how do we keep these families in ongoing care so they can continue being healthy, Mm -hmm. we do have to pay attention to biases, cultural matching, uh, lack of diversity within our professional pool of mental health professionals. I think even looking at the lack of edu- uh, the lack of research that goes into the evidence-based practices and how they're usually not done with diverse populations to show how those evidence-based practices actually work and it can be implemented with those diverse uh, populations or with those social identities that might be underserved and not as prevalent in our research. And so as you can see, there's so many little nuances here that I think we really have to start paying attention to. And my lens here is mm-hmm. how do we train people to pay attention to the African-American experience? How do we train people to understand that this experience is very unique and that our mental and emotional well-being is tied to our racial identity and how that racial identity is influenced or interacted with in the, with the rest of our society? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> which gets into which gets into your program, which is called Engaging African-American Families Training. Yes, Let's talk a yes. bit more about that. Uh, so give us your, I would say, elevator pitch. For yeah, it. yeah. So Engaging African-American Families Assessment Connection and Treatment Strategies for Lasting Change is a three-day weekend where we are going to dive into why it's so important to understand the African-American family experience, how to acknowledge and address your own unconscious bias as it relates to African-American families, And we're going to be looking at teaching you how to actually learn how to empower African-American parents to be the best stewards for their children. Because as I'm sure you continue to understand, 
being African-American, especially in the United States, is a really huge undertaking. And it's almost a source of advocacy and activism just showing up. Mm-hmm. And so I think therapists who really understand that and can lean into those discussions with their Black families, with their African-American families, are going to show them that they can take care of their mental health. They can take care of their emotional health. And they can do the same for their children, even though we're living in a world that sometimes doesn't know how to care for African-American families and their children. Mm-hmm. So what is, so in these three days, what else, um, what are some of the particulars beyond the broad program, just so we know, uh, cause I, you know, I'm looking at your original email. We're talking about the collaboration, the registration, give us a little more of those. Yeah. Yeah. And so day one really jumps into the history of African-Americans in the United States, right? It talks about how we came to be a culture how our culture actually looks here and how all of that historical relevance really lends itself to how we show up today in our world. We'll weave that into how understanding that actually can lean into your assessment of your African-American clients, right? That they're not just coming in with their acute symptoms, but they're coming in with all the systemic kind of oppression and pressures that come with living in this identity, that come with living in this identity and trying to raise a child who's also living in that identity underneath the the world that we're dealing with, will end the first day really looking at core assessment tools that therapists can learn how to assess their own um, racial and unconscious bias, as well as how to assess for racial trauma in your clients. The next day, we're going to be talking about connection. Connection is almost a whole day because you don't understand how important it is to really connect. Connection is just not that therapeutic relationship. It's also being able to repair ruptures. It's also being able to lean into tough conversations. And it's also about the one thing we forget once we become uh, therapists, which is that second middle phase of therapy, which is the work phase. This is where the change happens. And so in our connection with our African-American clients, Building that connection really becomes the foundation for all the change that actually ends up coming up in your sessions and in your work with them. And so we spend a chunk of the day understanding what is connection? How does our unconscious bias get in the way of connection? How does probably racism and racial discrimination create that barrier in the sessions with our clients and how we can overcome that? as well as how can we overcome ruptures when you've maybe said the wrong thing or didn't understand the nuance in what was going on? How do we lean into that and talk about that so that way it becomes a whole therapeutic experience for both you and the client? And the client even learns a little bit more about how to manage those racial disruptions for themselves in a way that Mm. they can feel more empowered to advocate for, hey, I didn't like the way you said that, or can you please not use that terminology anymore, those words anymore? The last day is treatment strategies. And so after we've talked about the assessment in the history, after we've talked about connection and really holding that as your center for your work with African-American families, we're going to dive into actually treating them as well. We're going to talk about trauma-based strategies. So I'll be weaving in brain spotting at EMDR and helping people to understand how trauma works and how racial trauma is pervasive as well as ubiquitous, right? And I think, um, pernicious, right? I think uh, Mm -hmm. even David talks about that and how we have to understand that 
while trauma, as we understand it, are things that happened in the past that we can mitigate for a lot for African-Americans, it is ongoing. Mm -hmm. Racial trauma continues. So the treatment strategies will lean into how do you manage that week to week or even month to month experience of the African-American family where they come in and say, I think this is happening because of my race. I think that discrimination is happening. How do we treat families who might well, who might have these acute symptoms, but the overarching issue of racial trauma and racial mm-hmm. discrimination and racism continues to exacerbate sometimes those acute symptoms. And so the whole weekend, I want therapists to do one thing. I want them to lean into the fact that there's no way they can learn everything over three days, but that their commitment to wanting to understand the unique experiences and the historical relevance of being African-American in the United States and how that affects their treatment and how that even affects the way that you lean into treatment. Mm -hmm. By the end of the weekend, I'm hoping that therapists have a really good foundation for understanding what it means to work with African-American families. And I hope that they'll continue to do that work. There'll be resources, we'll be doing demos, we'll be doing case studies where you can really dive in and talk to other people in the, in the training about how does this look? How, how would I say this? How would I manage that? And so it's a three-day weekend where we're really just diving into what does it look like to truly sharpen my skills and working with the population with unique, nuanced issues and lived experiences that obviously influence their, their therapeutic relationship and their treatment. Hmm. Very nice. Yeah, because you know that's definitely not stuff that we're getting in the you know couple of hours of class that happens in our initial training. Let alone the amount of uh, hour or two of didactic that might happen at the agency. It really becomes that point where like you have to purposely at this point to go out and specifically get that training and work with that po- that population more so than some. I mean, let's be frank. There are some therapists who, frankly, will probably, beyond occasionally watching one of us walk down the street, may never actually work with an African-American family. And yet the course that they're supposed to be remembering from their schooling, from their agency is supposed to refer work with them when they one shows up after five years. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a huge deficit in our learning that many programs who that train therapists do not have a cultural competency or a cultural humility kind of course. And if they do, it is one semester, not mandatory. Take it if you feel like it. It's an elective, right? And I think those type of perspectives show our students and our new therapists that cultural competency doesn't matter. Cultural humility isn't important to our training. So Mm -hmm. when you don't have it as a course, right, when you don't have it even as a um, concentration, right, where people can really dive into cultural adaptations for interventions, cultural humility as we're working and researching and looking at the different issues and elements for minority populations or for underserved populations, if we do not talk about it, then our students don't believe it, right? They don't mm-hmm. think it matters. Then they get out into the world as trainees, as interns, as associates, and that they don't also have to do it. No agency says as part of your agency within the first year, you have to get cultural competency training. No one says that. They'll say you have to have an EBP. They'll say you have to have a degree from an accredited university. You have to have so many hours. But there's no way on anybody's anything where cultural competency, cultural humility, 
looking at specific populations is highlighted as something that needs to be done in your training. It's kind of one of those elective things that if you feel like you need to do it, go for it. And I think that sentiment has made cultural competency and cultural humility something that people don't take into consideration when they're looking at CEs or training or furthering their clinical skills. Or even to the standpoint of um, what goes into our licensing exams. Yeah. It's nowhere in there, nowhere in there. I don't remember it at all in the four hour or the two hour exam, having any cultural competency questions whatsoever. Which can also mean a very different interaction with the legal and ethics components of things when you have to also consider the cultural components of what's going on for these people. Yes, whoever they may be, whether they be African-American, whether they be Latino, whether they be Asian and Pacific Islanders, whether they be Muslim, whether they be uh, Native American. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you start talking that way, now we're looking at these different buckets of legal and ethical considerations that if you've never done training with these particular populations, you're going to write your notes differently. You're going to report things differently. Everything's going to be done from a very Eurocentric lens without understanding the nature of mm-hmm. the historical nature of legal and eth- ethical complications for these different identities. Um, how has have these identities interacted with the law or with the judicial system? I know for African-Americans, we have a whole, you know, we could do a whole three-day training on just African-Americans in the legal system Mm -hmm. and understand that. Um, Intersectionality came out of racism within the legal system that Kimberly Crenshaw and her colleagues uh, found, right? And so all of these things- I think we had a glitch there for a second. Could you Uh just review those, like the last five, 10 seconds? Yes. Am I cool now? I think so, yeah. Um, I was saying that even when we look at the topic of intersectionality, right, that that came out of the legal field and the research that Kimberly and Crenshaw and her uh, colleagues did looking at the racism just in the legal system, Mm -hmm. right, for African-Americans and other minorities. And so I think it's important what what you said that when we're not paying attention to to these populations, to these underserved populations, we're ignoring all of the implications and consequences and nuances that actually is going to influence their treatment, right? Mm-hmm. I definitely know uh, clients who have decided not to do treatment because they think they're going to be reported. They're going to have some type of legality. Uh, I think about undocumented uh, immigrants who will come in and say, I need mental health services, but because I'm undocumented, if you find that out, what will be the trajectory of my life, right? Mm-hmm. So I can't get services because if someone finds out I'm undocumented or that I you know, can't be here for whatever reason or my visa has expired or whatever has happened, then now I'm even more isolated because I can't reach out to services because of the legal and ethical things that could happen to me once I've reached out for services. And so I think all of those elements and really understanding the terminology, the language, the trajectory of mm-hmm. what this looks like, the consequences and implications, I think we really do need to be trained for each population on how to do this. And it needs to be more than just a broad one semester cultural competency course where each week we talk about one identity as Mm -hmm. if that's enough to give people, you know, the space. But even that to me feels like a good start, especially if it's mandatory, right? If Mm -hmm. you have to take multicultural counseling before you can graduate, that's a really good start. It's a good foundation. Right. Because now we're saying that we care enough that this is a huge requirement for you to be a skilled therapist, to take a multicultural counseling class or to take a cultural humility class. This is part 
of your training. It's not an elective or something that you can choose. This is part Mm -hmm. of how you're a skilled therapist or a skilled social worker. And so I think that systemic change would be really helpful too, that it starts Mm -hmm. at the school level, right? That's a really good foundation to help people understand throughout my career, I need to be mindful of these issues. I need to pay attention to these concerns with Mm -hmm. my clients. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Perry, I'm out here just talking, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Well, you are the, I, you, this is your program. You know it far better than I do. And I can, like I said, throw in the supports in the standpoint of it, but you know your program. You know what you're bringing to people. Yeah. So I, it's Thank like, you. I'm just here to be shoulders to stand on. I love it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I just think about it as you were talking about it. I was thinking about, some of the recent cases and we were discussing something I was dealing with uh, before we started recording. And I also just recently, we just, at the time of this recording, we had just finished um, brain spotting phase two with a, uh, with uh, Tracy Monroy, uh, Tracy Ganton Monroy, uh, we both know and has been on power cam several times. Um, but of one of the conversations I remember having with during one of our practicums with one student who was asking about brain spotting and evidence base. And is there an effort for that? And yes, there is definitely an effort to get the evidence components behind it so that some can consider this evidence base. What we do have to also realize is that this notion that evidence base is just somehow something fixed. And I had a reminder about how many of the various techniques we have been using, say, in the last 50 years, that didn't start out as, quote-unquote, evidence-based. That at the time they were created, they were not considered evidence-based or not being accepted. And it took time for all of that data to be founded before they got accepted. And as we've all also had to point out is like, there are other forces that are now far more involved with our work here, which goes even into what we're talking about uh, with your program about those things that want it to be manualized, that they yeah. want it universal to everybody and not every universal situation applies to everybody. At all. And I think that's the, the interesting, What's the word I'm looking here for? I think that's the interesting catch-22 with evidence-based practices Mm -hmm. is that in an effort to streamline therapy and treatment for, and you could say however you want, I'll use, I'll say this is my opinion. I think it was streamlined for insurance purposes. I think it was streamlined for community mental health and those treatment plans and kind of those treatment facility purposes. So you can say eight weeks later, we have data to say this person went through this training or went Mm -hmm. through this treatment plan and they're better. While I think there's some merit to that to be able to say, hey, after a certain number of sessions, has there been any change? I think the huge push that every therapist needs to be trained on an evidence-based practice really changed the landscape of what we're talking about now, mm-hmm. which it, it pushed out the minority and underserved populations. And it really kind of highlighted this idea of serialized treatment, right? You come in, you get what you need, you get out. And I think that really commercialized mental health and therapy to the point where people come in, even with me and say, I don't know how to do, I don't know why am I not getting better? Why am I not doing better? And I feel like those are just some of my opinions about what evidence-based practice did on the, on the surface are overarchingly. I think one of the things I want to see happen more is that if we're going to do evidence, we include more diverse populations 
in mm-hmm. how this evidence shows up long term. Right? Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at LGBTQIA, how does that work? If we're looking at African-American families, even when you think about the intersection of age, right, is this the same for youth or teenagers as it is for adults? Mm-hmm. Right? I think as we start really playing around with some of these nuances, those evidence-based practices will either show they're not as robust as we thought, or we'll see that, yes, this is a healthy trajectory for this particular set of symptoms. And this is how it's going to look for each population that mm-hmm. you do this with. Mm-hmm. I think once we get some of that, the evidence-based practice modality will be a little bit better. It'll be a little bit more robust. I think it'll be more inclusive. I think as it stands now, it hasn't been as inclusive because we haven't added those other components in of how does this evidence-based practice look with these specific populations? And does it produce the same outcomes or different outcomes than we initially designed the, the practice to be? And that's just mm-hmm. my you know high level, I'm a therapist out here trying to use it. This is kind of what I thought about mm-hmm. what they did to our profession. Well, and as you were talking about it, it just suddenly struck me something else. Again, historically, when you mentioned that aspect of insurance and then community, it's like, wait a minute, we go back to 1980 when the whole push, get rid of the mental state hospitals, which even though I'm not going to acknowledge, some of them were not in the greatest shape, Yeah, push all of them out into their communities for greater care. How much of this uh, evidence-based structure and all of that was also created because of that decision-making? Yeah. Yeah. That has a systemic thing. And influence the idea of how the idea that there was the agency that was now going to be doing it as opposed to the state hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I hear you say that I think about that systemic level change that happened there when you take away a whole level of treatment, right? That mm-hmm. state level hospital, who fills that gap? Where's the gap, right? Who fills mm-hmm. that gap that the hospitals were, were feeling, right? Because you could pet, you know, so many people in the beds. And I agree with you. Not every hospital was up to par. Not every hospital was doing what they were supposed to be doing. But I think when you take away a whole section of treatment or a whole section of services with no gap, all of that spillover does exactly what you just said. It goes into our communities. It goes into our agencies. It goes into our individual therapist offices. And there's just not enough there, mm-hmm. right? For each of these agencies to take on the need. Uh, even when you think about our school mental health, right? So we're training a lot of therapists and, the, and people are coming into the student psych services, but even those, you know, there's only a certain amount of kids in the program who can hold mm-hmm. a certain amount of people on their caseload. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you're talking about that, that, um, change of mental health serving and who took the brunt of the funding for that and where the programs were going to be funded, I think it created a systemic change in mental health that really divided who could really afford the better, more structured care versus the people who maybe could not and had to deal with whatever the agencies or insurances were offering at Mm. that time, Mm. right? And so I think that's something that I think about in my macro level space of how can we change policy So that way, as people are are getting services on the micro level, there's policies that support and protect their well-being, right? So you're not like, I I think about just title protection for social workers, things like that, or even bills that talk about funding that goes Mm -hmm. directly to mental health services. I think about all of these systemic things that need to happen. And they all came from what you just said, that systemic change on the government level to get rid of a whole section of mental health treatment. 
Mm-hmm. Right. With, like that was a whole thing. Which also, I think, too, because you know, we also need to be should be wrapping up here is if we also look yeah. at the historical numbers and so forth, the issue with homelessness mm-hmm. and exploded more probably within five to 10 years of those hospitals being closed down. Yes. 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 And we're all seeing that. I think almost every major city is seeing the effects of that. Right. And that was the 80s. So I, mm-hmm. I was born in 85. I'm 37. So it's almost 40 years ago mm-hmm. that this happened. Right. <laughs> that like, we're still seeing the long-term effects of taking away a whole systemic part of our country that was sustaining and for better or for worse, was taking care of that population. Mm-hmm. Now that population is out in the world, mitigating their symptoms as best they can. If you look at Skid Row on, uh, in LA, if you look at maybe even Fullerton in Orange County, there's a huge um, unhoused or unhomed population uh, up North San Francisco, mm-hmm. right? There's a huge Oakland. unhomed population, Oakland, right? Where we just don't have the capacity to support these folks because we don't have anything in our systemic space to support them. Everything is very micro. Everything is me and you. You mm-hmm. know, another therapist just trying to catch the gaps. There's no systemic, you know, policy. There's no statewide policy or government-wide policy that says this is how we're going to treat the mental health needs of our unhomed or, or of our underserved or our underrepresented or under, you know. Um, populations. And I think this, outside of me and you, is the bigger policy change that we need to do. And that would also have been an area where looking at how we're treating African-American, Latin, everyone who is going to have a marginalized or, shall we say, different cultural uh, experience other than the dominant Western gaze would be also very critical in having. Yes, agreed. And I always say this, representation isn't just in the media. Representation happens everywhere. When we can see that people care about cultural competency as it relates to mental health training, that becomes the representation that we need. It's why I'm doing trainings like this, because I want to show people it's okay to specifically get trained on how to work with populations, right? I've gone to trans um, and LGBTQIA specific training so I can understand language, so I can understand trajectory because I am a cisgender heterosexual person, right? So I wanna understand what that process is. I wanna be able to be an ally and I can't do that just saying, yeah, I know someone who's in that population or I've seen you know, things on TV. I have to get trained, I have to understand, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think oftentimes we believe because we might be in a marginalized identity or because we might not be, you know, um, white facing, that we don't need the training. We know what it means to be a minority. I always tell people, be really mindful that every identity, whether it be racial, gender, sexual, or age, or any other um, identifying information that you kind of go with, we all have specific, unique experiences that are influenced by those identities. And whether you are considered yourself a minority or not, you don't know what those other identities are exploring and you don't know how those other identities are managing their mental and emotional wellness. And so training is the best way to understand that being trained by someone who is skilled, who understands, who actually identifies in that space and has the emotional capacity to train you and support you. Don't do that. Stop asking your friends. Stop asking people to tell you what the next book is and the best resource. Go get the training, invest in yourself, learn more about um, how to support the mental and emotional well-being of 
I would say marginalized identities, um, but I'm also learning to use the word people of the global majority mm-hmm. as well. But I think those ideas need to be hit home. more. We need to be more open about talking about it in our profession. And we need to be more open about being okay with specialized training to treat identities that oftentimes don't get talked about in our research or in our treatment modalities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's a great place for us to take a break and let this all soak in for folks. So stay tuned for our second half here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Uh, I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with Mercedes Somidio, licensed clinical social worker. We'll be back in a bit, folks. Stay tuned. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark here with... Licensed marriage family care therapist here with Mercedes Samidio, licensed clinical social worker. So we've been talking a bit about her new program that's going to be, it's starting in June 2nd to the 4th. And uh, there is sign sign up is available for it still. Uh, And by the time this airs, you're probably going to have only a couple of days left to be able to take advantage of the early bird special. But we'll talk a bit more about that at the end. But the focus of what you're looking for is encouraging African-American families three day training. And the I'll try to make sure to put the link for it in the web on our show notes so that you'll be able to find that. But again, if you just do a web search for encouraging African-American families, you should find the link for this. So Mercedes, one of those questions, which I kind of, we kind of did out of order here is like, why are you the best person or the person that is available now, not to be able to provide this service? Yeah. Oh, I, I kind of feel like it's a bit of both. I feel like I'm the person now who's doing it, but I feel like I'm the best person for a lot of reasons. And one is my personal story. Uh, I started talking about my personal story in my book, Shame Proof Parenting. I was raised by my grandmother and so not by my mom. There were a lot of things going on in my family that if a therapist had understood how to manage some of that, the generational stuff that was going on with my grandmother raising me because my parents couldn't, 
uh, the kinship stuff that was going on, which is a different relationship between a grandmother and a granddaughter than a mother and a daughter, even all of the family supports or lack thereof that came and went as we navigated our relationship. Mm -hmm. I often think, how could that knowledge have helped a mental health professional help a social worker understand how can that knowledge have helped people to understand the nuance and the trajectory of African-American families and how different things like substance use or foster care or even just the ways in which we create our families really influence the ways in which our mental and emotional well-being comes out in the world? Mm. That's number one. Number two, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been in this field pretty much since I finished my bachelor's in psychology. I have only worked with children and youth and families. It has only been my focus. And in all of my work, one of the things that has hurt me and made me so overwhelmed and disheartened is the way African-American families are treated in the community mental health uh, and community services pool. The amount of stigma, stereotypes, and just downright nasty comments people make about African-American families and their ability to either get out of poverty or get out of the system or lack thereof really hurt me. Because mm -hmm. I know that these therapists who want to help think that that stigma and that bias is helping, but it's really causing a barrier in African-American families or, or persons to even want to attend sessions, to even want to come into sessions. And so I become the best person to help you understand that this is something that needs to be, you need to be aware of, aware of your unconscious bias, aware of your racist ideas, if you have them, which honestly, let's be real. I think all of us do, unless we've actually reckoned with it. Mm -hmm. And unless we've actually sat down and really talked to ourselves and worked with the professional or worked on ourselves to manage it, um, to stop being so scared of the term racism or being a racist, right? Or racial discrimination. We have to start having these tough conversations because whether you know it or not, your African-American families are having these conversations and they're trying to navigate the mental and emotional weight of racism and racial discrimination. And if they come to mental health services and they can't get that support, then it makes it even more difficult. Whatever acute symptoms they were having get exacerbated even more. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk to therapists about that, how really managing your own unconscious bias can help change the dynamic of many African-American families who come to you. I'm only one person. I can't see everybody. I've mm -hmm. had a lot of therapists. I mean, a lot of clients tell me, I'm so happy you're Black. I'm so happy you're here. But I'm just one person who could probably at most see like 10 to 15 people a week mm -hmm. <laughs> at most. Mm -hmm. And so I can't do it all. But there are skilled clinicians out there who might not be Black or African-American, but they still have the skills to support people. All they need is to be able to address their racial and unconscious bias, address the racism, address the stuff that you maybe learned from your family that you never addressed, or maybe you've learned from society that you've never really looked at. Let's address it. Let's talk about it. So that way, when you're sitting in these sessions with, our, with your African-American clients, you're not scared of racism. You're not scared of being called racist. You're not even being scared of being called to task for something that you said that was racist. You can sit there with them and say, you know what? Let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about how that term felt for you or how that conversation felt for you and not to sh shy away from those conversations. So I'm the best person and the person that you have now to do it with all of my lived experience, with all of my lived experience as a trauma survivor in an African-American family, with my actual professional experience as a licensed clinical social worker and my training under different modalities like brain spotting and EMDR, using all of that to help you, the therapist who is working with 
African-American families to feel more confident leaning into the comfortable conversations that bring them towards change, but also the uncomfortable conversations that bring them towards change. Very nice. And actually, I think there was one thought that just popped to mind as you were talking about that, which is even an area to go further in that too, is the standpoint of, it's not just talking about healing the families and what these families have gone through. How then does this come into how they start having relationships to start their own families later on? Whether that is with another person of that cultural identity or someone who is a different cultural identity. I love that. I love that. And I think you're right about that. I think this becomes a larger discussion, right? That the focus is on training you how to treat and support African-American families, but in learning about this culture and learning about their struggles and their strengths their triumphs and some of their, you know, hardships, it helps you in, as you're navigating the world, as mm-hmm. you're going around and seeing different cultures of people, when you interact, you have a different understanding and you're coming to it with a different lens. And I think that becomes part of representation as well, too. The more I can be introduced to people's humanity, the more I can really empathize and understand that even though we have different identities, there's a humanness to you, right, that I need to address and understand. hmm which is something that I think, again, then gets caught up in the ideas of what is the goal or goal and purpose of therapy for mm-hmm. some being the aspect of, again, therapy grew out of, or how we practice to a certain degree today, grew out of the medical model, mm-hmm. the biological medical model of symptoms, pains, disorders, and so forth, as opposed yeah. to building from a structure that this is about human nature, both its good components and its bad components. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that perspective because I think that's something too to pay attention to when we're talking about African-Americans, right? We've mm-hmm. said it before and I'll continue to say it. African-Americans and black populations talk nonstop historically and in the research about how discriminatory healthcare settings are. And so with our profession being based in the medical profession, which is very healthcare based, it tends to be very discriminatory towards minority Mm -hmm. populations in terms of how we understand their bodies, how their bodies recover, how their bodies accept pain. And there is countless studies on how Black people were experimented on and thought to have, you know, not to experience pain or experience pain differently. And that's the medical model. Mm -hmm. That's the medical model that we thought that Black people for some reason were superhuman at this point, right? But a lot of those medical models came from that, you know, stereotype perspective. And so even to this day, you find Black people being disproportionately uh, or having disproportionate mortality rates for pregnancy, for giving birth, for heart disease, for cancer even, Mm -hmm. because people don't listen to African-Americans and Black people when they talk about their symptoms in the medical in the med- in the healthcare field. Mm-hmm. Now imagine bringing that over here to, to therapy and mental health, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's a huge, huge stigma in, in our in our culture about what it means to seek mental health services. Um, you even brought up something that I think is important to talk about: that if you come outside of the medical model, a lot of our mental and emotional spaces in the African American community are spiritual, mm-hmm. right? And so while we may understand the tangible 
logical, mental, and emotional symptoms. We also have a spiritual understanding of what mm-hmm. those symptoms might be. Mm-hmm. And so ignoring that or not being able to distinguish that in a session could be really catastrophic because you might think the person has delusions or other things that are not true. They just have a whole separate understanding of their symptoms that's based in spirituality. And so I say all of this to say a training that mm-hmm. talks specifically about that hits what you just said. It hits on this idea that if we're just coming from the medical model of treating and fixing and solving and making everyone better, we're missing a whole space of intervention that allows people to understand what it means to live in a mental and emotional wellness space. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean I'm fixed. It means that I'm living here constantly taking care of myself, constantly kind of showing up for myself. Understanding what that looks like for African-American populations, I think, is integral to treating them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, even more so, because one of the elements you just mentioned was that aspect of how often that gets couched in the idea of magical thinking. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, about the understanding of the spiritual components of this. And even though that's not the biggest focus of what we're talking about, is like if we also look at the history of what brought our ancestors here and then how they were treated, it wasn't from that standpoint of the medical model. It, to essentially get people to live on the plantations and work on it was about emotional trauma, not just physical trauma. Yes. Yes. So the aspect of, and that hesitance people have is that standpoint of this is still part of the same system that was used to traumatize us. Yes. And in many ways for some, they're still being traumatized by the same system that is supposed to be tried to here to, help heal them yeah so it yeah, creates that aspect to say that <laughs> yeah well it comes back to that standpoint of why should i do anything related to this yeah. why should any of us even be working in this field if that's the case because we are worth being taken care of say that again perry we are worth being taken care of we are we worth are. being healed yeah and i think that's a great space to kind of sit on because I think that's the whole reason why I came into this profession. This is the whole reason why I continue to get trained in this profession. I continue to learn more about trauma. I continue to learn more about the long-term effects of not being cared for historically and just in general. And I think it's so important that you bring that up, that we totally deserve to be healed. We deserve to be treated fairly. We deserve that. And that becomes really, I I just love that you said that, that becomes really the North Star, the focus of my training for those three days is that as you look at African-American families really holding, they deserve to be healed. They deserve to be treated with respect. They deserve to have treatment modalities that reflect their lived experiences and who they are, right? All of that. I just, I just love that. I think that's literally going to be my North Star for, for the three-day training of we deserve to be healed. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's just let that soak in. And that kind of leads to something else. Totally. We're going to go. Okay, folks, we're letting our geek flags start flying here now. Um, So as Mercedes and I have gotten to know each other, one of the things that we've talked about is also gaming. And one of them I have been playing a lot, even though recently we've got the Dungeons and Dragons Honor Monks Thieves movie out, which is 
better than most of the past Dungeons and Dragons movies that have come out, but that's not where I'm going with this. Uh, one of the other game systems I've been playing is Call of Cthulhu. And uh, you can also catch me over off of uh, Symphony Entertainment uh, RPGs. I've played a couple of games on their stream. Uh, there where we're playing horror and cosmic horror. And as someone who's played games for a while, I've started right now working on my own scenario to publish. Uh, it's taking a while because this is a f- formally trying to write something for people to enjoy as opposed to just crafting it for my friends. But one of the things that sort of had me stop and just do a very cursory and I need to do much deeper research um, was looking at the I, one of the constant themes in a Cthulhu is mental health and dealing with mental asylums. And I just did a quick search is like mental health facilities, 1920 or so forth that were POC focused. And while I didn't find many that were actually talking about facilities that were dealing with POC mental health, I found plenty that were dealing with orphanages, but not many that were also talking about these mental state hospitals, which we were talking about earlier, that were centered for the care of POC people. Which also then brings that aspect of, oh, what does this mean for the scenario that I'm writing after basically being confronted with some massive cosmic horrors in the U.S. for POC? What is the outcome for them? More so than any others. And there's an ending I actually wrote for that, which just sort of illustrates that. Yeah. Yeah. You're You're making me think of Get Out. Mm-hmm. Right, where the whole horror of the movie is being black in a white mm-hmm. space. That was the horror of the movie, and and you make me think about it as you're talking about Cthulhu and this mythos and and how psychological that horror is. It's a very psychological horror, right? Mm-hmm. But then you think, like you just said, there are no POCs in this space, right? So are we even exploring the psychological horror or how horror or how you know horror can psychologically influence an African-American person that goes mm. into how do people even role play that person, mm-hmm. right? How do people even know what to say or to do for that person when they come up against something horrific or scary? And so as I listen to you talk about you writing this, you are now starting a whole representation space for how does a, a, a role-playing person of color react to psychological horror or cosmic horror? Mm-hmm. You're about to you're about to start a whole new thing for people oh. because no one knows. No one. How does a black person deal with Cthulhu showing up? Right. We have um, we have Cthulhu Death May Die. Those big mm-hmm. box games, right? And so we've played it. There's a few African American characters in there, and most of those characters are tropey characters based mm-hmm. on like horror tropes. But as I, I always pick either the little girl or the or the black character because it becomes this idea of how to show people at this table how a black person will react to the horror that's happening as we pull cars and, and move spaces. Mm-hmm. How do I react? And I really do get into it. And so as I'm listening to you talk about it, I think there's such a huge space to say, how do POCs react in fictional fantasy, horrific worlds? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. So then a whole generation of gamers will be able to have characters that they now know this is how a person of color would react if they saw Cthulhu or if they saw the cultists calling Cthulhu or if they saw any of these things happening. I actually have an understanding, not just a made up thing. I actually have an understanding mm-hmm. of how they would react 
or how that would influence their their psychological you know responses oh yeah well i don't think i'm the first because i mean there is harlem unbound by chris spivey okay. which is sort of my north that. star for all of oh, this I love uh, that. Uh, as well as his Haunted West series is my North Star for starting this. So he started, it's just that lens of, with the mental health side of it, how does this now play out for this and the uh, experiences? Because there's, I know, so I've watched some of the actual plays, both of his, of either of his two scenarios, where it's just like, do you really think about what you're saying, what you're doing? Or even the standpoint of how do we set a, a story in a setting like that? I mean, I know I also very much listened to uh, Tanana Reeve Du, who has uh, who's my uh, one of my anniversary episodes uh, of last year, talking about black horror and how it also fits into Afrofuturism, but also that experience of what does it mean for us. And as I continue to listen to their podcast, the uh, Life Writing one, uh, I know they recently had one of the ones I was listening to is talking about spite houses, a spite house. And the idea of spite architecture and how that is part of this structure that this author, who is a black man, used to create his story and this aspect of black horror coming out more now, seeing those structures. I mean, like the Netflix one, Swarm, I haven't watched it, but it's like, again, here is a black horror centered serial killer. I watched it. I binged it. it. It's worth it. It's super worth it. It's worth it for exactly what you just said. It steeps this African-American or Black female character as a serial killer. We've never seen it. Like, you don't, this is not the norm. This isn't mm-hmm. the trope. The trope is not, you know, and she's about my height. I think she's probably like five, three, five, one. So she's not this big, bulking, Michael Myers-like super, you mm-hmm. know, serial killer. She's a Black woman. You know what I'm saying? And she has an, an obsession and that obsession drives her to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. And to see that psychological depth, mm-hmm. I think, is what you and all of the, the, the horror kind of people are, who are in the cosmic horror or Afrofuturism uh, talk about, which is black people exist here. We have these experiences. But when you look at fantasy, Fantasy mm-hmm. hasn't often shown what we look like in fantasy. What do we look like in these worlds, right? These these horrific worlds, these beautiful worlds, these Narnian worlds. Like, what do we look like? Mm-hmm. And I think seeing more of it, even just, I, again, I just keep getting back to hearing you talk about creating these stories and these narratives. I think it's important. I think it's really important that we talk about it. And that intersection of the Black experience with cosmic mm-hmm. horror at mental health, mm-hmm. that's the piece of it that I think is going to be really helpful too, because we don't talk about mental health in our community all the time. And we're not always well-versed in how to talk to others mm-hmm. in our community about mental health. And so can you imagine pulling up a book, right? Playing through a scenario and learning, oh, that's how you talk about it, or that's the language, or that's, you know, I'm just, I'm just sitting here really in awe of your brain and that ability to link that together, because I think it's something we need. We need these representations of it. We need something outside of the pedantic academic research papers right. to really help people connect into what does the African-American or Black experience look like across genres, not just, you know, we're not always talking about mental health and sadness and diagnosis. We also play role-playing games and we dress up and we cosplay and we have mm-hmm. big sides, right? And so I love seeing that also flourish 
right? We always talk about the plight of African-Americans and Black people and how, how horrible it is for us. But I love seeing this side come out too, that we're geeks and we, and we go to conferences and, and we enjoy cosplaying and being nerds, right? That's part of our Black joy too. Mm-hmm. So I love that you're going to be kind of bringing that intersection to, to that for us. Yeah, because it comes up in a few other places too in the um, standpoint that... Um, and I completely lost that train of thought there for a second, but I remember components of it. So, for example, um, one of the Kickstarters that I know I uh, have done. Um, now, I'm going to have to. I'll include a link in the um, group chat because I'm right now blanking on his name, but I can see his work. But one of the things I was recently reading from it, this particular black artist was talking about the whole Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, environment and so forth and writing compare i guess he was part of the chicago by night uh recent book that came out and one of the things he pointed out was that if you look at the vampire masquerade mythos and then the aesthetic of it it's all the goth stuff Mm -hmm. so what would it look like for vampire the masquerade to be in any other structure such as black and the idea of what would the disco look like? Because that was also a big area of not just the 70s, but also Black culture in Chicago, the dance hall and the disco. What would Black vampires be doing in this same world and expressing itself beyond just the gothic horror black dress, black lipstick, being absolutely pale for a black person. And I know Key and Peele sort of play with that joke in one of their episodes uh, of dealing with vampires and and such. But it's like, but again, it's that standpoint of what does it have to all be this aesthetic? I think that's a really great question. I love what you just said. I just love the question of what would a black vampire be doing in Chicago at the disco in like mm-hmm. the seventies? I and mm. like, I want to read that book. I want to read that story. I want to see that movie because I think you're just bringing out what we've been talking about, which is look at this vastness of lived experience that you just opened up by just talking about something that's so true. Everyone knows what a vampire is, right? But to think about a black vampire who is not, you know, beholden to those tropes, the all black, the all pale, right? Mm-hmm. At the disco, Right. In Chicago, I just think about how much a representation that would show that it would take out it would take out of those particulars that we're always trying to push everybody. in. you have to look Mm. like this if you're going to be a vampire, you have to be like this if you're going to be doing horror. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see it. And I hear you talking about it, all of the the. The creativity that comes out of it Um, is making me think about uh, the book Jackal that I read at the beginning of this year by Aaron E. Adams. It's a horror book. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's and I, I. I reached out to her on social media when I finished and I said, thank you for giving me a black final girl, I love <laughs> the final girl trope, but it's always, you know, a white woman who is like perfect and, you know, just everything that I've virginal. Thought. Right. And you have this black, strong, female, messy, not perfect final girl um, in Jackal. And mm. I, I, I was so happy to see that because as you mentioned, I think we need to see more representation than just what Black people normally get relegated to in these fantasy worlds, 
we exist. We could be vampires. We could be final girls. We could be serial killers, right? We could mm-hmm. be superheroes. We could be, you know, Mr. We could be Mr. Tumnus waiting at the lamp when someone walks mm-hmm. through, you know, the doors of Narnia. We can be all of that, but we need to show people that we can do that. We need to show up in these spaces and do it. And again, going back to our topic, that's why I'm here, right? Mm-hmm. I'm here. Hi. There are black trainers. There are black trainers who are talking about what it means to be black and how that works, right? Mm-hmm. There are black podcast hosts that are out here getting these amazing guests and showing that there's so many avenues and faucets to to the experience out here in mental health. We're living and we're not just all talking about, you know, representation and cultural diversity. We're out here living. And so I love hearing always, every time we connect, I always love hearing what's going on in the black kind of nerd world because i think that's something that people oftentimes too don't put with people with black people we not we're not usually the nerds that people are thinking of i love our new term blurred right the black <laughs> nerd because it's something that people need to have in their voc- vocabulary that a nerd doesn't have to look like what we've always seen you know the short white guy with glasses who's kind of dorky with a pocket protector mm-hmm. not all nerds look like that <laughs> look different and so i love hearing what you're sharing and love knowing that more we talk about it, the more we can kind of bring that intersectionality into it, right? We can bring more understanding of what does it mean to be black and, mm-hmm. and what does that look like in the world? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we should be wrapping up there. So where can Let's folks find you and find more about your particular project and uh, this group? And this is definitely a place where the rest of those particulars I started mentioning earlier in the second half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the best place to find me is probably on my website, shameproofparenting.com. You can definitely find me there. Um, I will give Perry the links to my training so you can definitely connect there. And also I am all over the internet. So if you Google Mercedes Samudio, you'll find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Please connect with me. Please feel free to reach out. And I look forward to connecting with you all. Okay. So the particulars about your the, the signing up for your program. Oh, let's get that. Let's yes, make sure we get that. Because sure. I'm sure Thank they're you. saying, it's like, can we get to that? Can we get to that? Yes, please. Yes, let's get to did. that. So the best way to get to my engaging African-Americans three-day training is the link. It is bit.ly. Is it forward slash engaging yeah. AA families? Um, it is going to be happening on the weekend of June 2nd through June 4th. We'll be there all day, nine to five. Really Pacific Standard Time. We talk, Pacific Standard Time. Thank you. Time zones have become a thing for me during this time. So yes, June 2nd through June 4th, nine to five Pacific Standard Time. The links to it are in the show notes, as Perry said, but that is what we'll be doing. Engaging yep. African-American parents. Uh, this, uh, you're... you're um... The early bird special? When does that end? Yes. And our early bird special ends on May 5th. May 5th. Right. And you so, use the code early at checkout. Okay. And I'm going to try to have this out, sadly, by May 1st. So you're going to have a few days that to works. use that code. Otherwise, everything's going to be back to regular price. And who, again, are who are those that should be coming to this? So pretty much if you're a mental health professional, mental health advocate, anyone who is working with African-American families in the mental health sphere, you're totally welcome to attend because that's what we're going to be talking about. All right. Perfect. So Mercedes, thank you once again. And thank I hope you, you enjoy so the rest of, rest of your day in the week. Thank and you. And the same thing for you folks. I hope you're enjoying the rest of your day and your week and you're just looking at the world a little different because that can help you recognize how you need to be healed how you need to take care of yourself because you deserve to be cared for. 
So, Ashe, and we'll be in tune. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 